everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice podcast for healthcare professionals, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant eMental health tools and programs that can assist you in providing clinical care. I'm Phoebe Holdenton Kamira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from Webinar 53, Overcoming Barriers to E-Mental Health Interventions. With me on the panel were guests Dr. Alison Mahoney, a Senior Clinical Psychologist and the Director of Clinical Research at the Clinical Research Institute for Anxiety and Depression, which you might know as CRUFAD, uh, the people who are responsible for this way up. Dr. Mike Millard, a Consultant Psychiatrist and Clinical Director at CRUFAD, and Dr. Melinda Choi, a GP from the ACT and ACT Health GP Policy Advisor. In terms of the structure, we're going to be talking about a case scenario to get us kicked off, um, and then we'll be talking a little bit about the evidence base uh, for e-mental health interventions and then really uh, get stuck into uh, talking about some of those barriers that you might face and trying to come up with some helpful solutions for yourselves. All right. So let's meet Jane for our case scenario. Jane's a 25-year-old female who started having panic attacks when she was about 18. When she first started getting them, she'd never had one before and she found them absolutely terrifying. She wasn't sure what was going on and so she attributed it to food allergies and became so fearful of those episodes that she cautiously restricted her diet. She also stopped drinking alcohol seeing her friends and riding public transport as she needed to feel in control of her environment. She did manage things for some time, but then she started getting panic attacks when sitting in her lectures at uni. She became so stressed that recently she deferred her studies for six months. She lives at home with her parents and her younger brother, and she's been trying to manage everything on her own up until this point, but her mum's been getting really worried and been asking her to seek professional help. And it's at this point that she comes to see her GP. So, Alison, what are your thoughts? Do you think that um, an e-mental health intervention might be suitable for Jane? Yeah, absolutely. I would be certainly wanting her to consider it. Um, Obviously, for all our clients and patients, we'd want them to be considering an evidence-based treatment. Um, Jane looks like she's having panic attacks, panic disorder, Anxiety disorders often respond to CBT. Um, An online CBT program is just as effective and safe. Um, She can access it immediately. Um, She's a uni student. Maybe she doesn't have a lot of money. An online course is not going to cost her anything or it's going to have very low cost. Um, She's distressed. She's suffering. I'd definitely be encouraging her to to consider online treatment that she can start straight away. It wouldn't be the only thing that I would Mm. recommend, Mm -hmm. um, but I would definitely want her to consider that for an option and maybe she can talk to her parents about it, talk to her GP about it, um, but I'd definitely be suggesting it to her. Yeah, thank you. Um, So that's exactly what her GP did. Um, Her GP uh, recommended her to start uh, an online CBT course, specifically uh, the This Way Up course for panic disorder, and asked her to come in uh, for review the following week. But when she comes back for her review, she tells you that she hasn't really had the opportunity to sign up or start the course yet. Does that sound familiar to you, Melinda? Is that something that happens a lot in general practice? Uh, Hi, yes, Phoebe. Um, Yeah, absolutely. As well, I think uh, there's lots of patients who, you know, you ask them to do something and 
for whatever reason, um, they're unable to do it or they don't get around to doing it. Um, so, and that would be the same for an online CBT or even maybe even asking them to get in touch with a psychologist um, and make an appointment to see them in person. It happens for both. Mm. Um, and how would you, how would you approach the conversation with her? Would you, would you try and explore her barriers further? Yeah, definitely. So I think, of course, um, I would be recognizing that Jane, as like lots of other GPs here, is in a lot of distress, as Arzen pointed out, and she's taken a big act of trust to come and see me. Like it's a, it's, you know, she's gone, been going for a long time, and then she's come and see me after a long time of um, undergoing these symptoms. And so it's a big first step. And then, of course, the next step is another big step. And I just really want to make sure that, um, you know, I'm kind of staying engaged in my relationship with Jane um, and trying to um, implement kind of patient-centred management. And so I would be wanting to check in with Jane and see where she's at, like what happened over the last week, potentially open it up with her, walk her through it, give her a couple of steps, and then, of course, bring her back again um, another short time period, which is probably why this GP brought her back within a week anyway, just to see how she's going and kind of be that support to her as she goes through the process and bring her back again soon. Mm. So that follow-up appointment is having a dual purpose. Part of it is to see how Jane's going, but it's also to see where she's at in pursuing those treatment options um, and that you'd probably follow up again with her to make sure that she hasn't sort of been lost in the ether. Um, So the happy news is... I think think it can be quite helpful to normalise that you know, whether it's a physio appointment mm. or doing your, checking your your blood sugars, like it's quite normal for people not to engage in things straight away and for their, ne- their need to be encouragement and kind of that support. And rather than shaming people or making them feel guilty, you know, I struggle to follow my physio exercise. Totally. Like it, I think it's, it's fine to really normalise that experience. It's okay. Digital mental health interventions are no different from other interventions in that way. That's exactly right. And I'm thinking, you know, that it might be the first time that Jane's ever heard of something like this. So it, it can be a process of planting the seed and then discussing it again at another point in time. But the happy news is that um, Jane's story is actually based on a real person uh, who sought treatment uh, for her panic disorder. She says that she wasn't miraculously cured, but at the same time, it's had a really substantial um, impact on her life. It's been four years now and she's been able to do so many things that appeared impossible at the time. And I know for certain that none of this would have been possible if I hadn't undergone some treatment. So I think that these are really powerful words. So when we're talking about digital health online programs, there's a whole suite uh, of programs available in Australia as part of the e-mental health in practice program. Uh, We have MindSpot, uh, which is uh, through uh, Macquarie University. We have This Way Up from CRUFAD at St. Vincent's, Uh, My uh, Mental Health Online, uh, Mood Gym, My Compass uh, from Black Dog Institute and eCouch from Australian National University. And so um, I I just wanted to highlight that there are quite a number of programs, uh, but, you know, it is uh, from this way up that we have Alison and Michael tonight. So there'll be some specific things, uh, nuances around this way up that we'll be exploring a little bit later on. But I guess that brings us to a question around what digital health treatments really are. 
there's just so many um, things out there that it can get pretty confusing, Mike. Uh, absolutely. And look, we're here to talk about barriers and I actually have to congratulate the audience tonight in crossing the first one, um, which is actually finding out <laughs> about uh, the array of uh, digital treatments and tools and what the difference between them is. Um, we often find that we've done a, a, a not a great job actually uh, in explaining uh, the differences between digital tools and digital treatments. And we are lucky in Australia to have two of the largest and most established digital mental health treatments available uh, in the world. And of course, I'm referring to Mindspot and This Way Up. And uh, I think when I, I, I last looked, there's something like 20,000 different mental health uh, apps in the App Store. And as clinicians, uh, our patients will come to us. And how the hell do we work out one from the other? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that uh, I guess I really wanted to uh, emphasise tonight uh, is that what we're talking about are treatments. So they're actually packages that are the equivalent of seeing a face-to-face -face psychologist for a course of cognitive behavioural therapy. So typically when that's uh, given in a face-to-face -face environment, it's somewhere between six to 12 sessions uh, if we, we look at the, the typical treatment manuals. So these online programs are the equivalent of someone getting a full dose of cognitive behavioural therapy or a year's worth of antidepressants. And I can't open the media or the newspaper uh, in a week and not see an article about the tsunami of demand across our community. Mm. And you, uh, you all here are uh, clinicians out on that front line. Uh, and when we're on the front line, uh, we're seeing this explosion in demand. And very rarely do we actually hear in that media coverage or those stories that we're world leaders in these internet-based CBT programs. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the evidence base that's behind them and try and confront some of the myths and barriers that exist around integrating these programs into our care uh, and our treatment plans because mm. uh, we're really missing out on a very important intervention that we can be using to help with the levels of distress that are across the community. Mm, beautiful. So what you're describing is a little bit different to just saying, oh, just download Smiling Mind or Calm onto your phone and just give it a whirl and see what you think. You're actually saying it's a prescribed course of treatment. That's exactly right. And so it's very different from a single app that has a breathing exercise yeah. um, or a mindfulness exercise to a full dose of cognitive behavioral therapy. So Beautiful. Thank you. And I understand that there's sort of different ways in which that can be used in clinical practice. Mike, can you talk us through some of the different methods that we might choose to use it with our clients? Yes. So one of the things about uh, working in this area is that, um, and certainly this way up, we have a community of 27,000 clinicians across the country who are integrating these tools into their practice. Often, uh, we don't know when we do the mental health care plan and we give the referral to someone what the wait time is going mm. to be. We're living in this crazy world of wait lists and 
it could be 10 to 12 weeks before someone could get into face-to-face -face care. So exactly as Melinda mentioned before, the importance of that follow-up appointment is even more important if we know that they're not going to be accessing care. So one of the really beautiful ways of using the digital treatment programs is sure, do what you would normally do in your mental health care plan, but also use one of the digital tools or also prescribe a this way up course to the patient at the same time and explain to them how that fits in the process. Because uh, for a, lot, a large proportion of people who do our programs, especially in the mild to moderate uh, spectrum, they may not need to go on to face-to-face -to -face, uh, or more intensive uh, psychological services. For the people that do, by the time that they get to see a face-to-face -face clinician, they're light years ahead of where they were before because the programs have provided the psychoeducation, the programs have taught them the skills of how to uh, challenge their thoughts, of behavioural activation, of uh, e exposure therapy. So uh, the psychologist gets to start and spend a lot more time helping the person to apply the skills, which is much more powerful and a wonderful way of using the specialist skills that you all have as clinicians. Um, so as a preparation to face-to-face -face treatment, one of the core ways that we use the programs here at St Vincent's Hospital is by supercharging our own face-to-face -face therapy. So I know that there's a lot of psychologists that are in the audience tonight. And uh, for our clinic and for a whole lot of, uh, we have one in three psychologists uh, registered with us to integrate the program into their care. So uh, we get uh, our patients to do a module in between our face-to-face -face sessions. So the system teaches the skills and that allows us to spend our time helping people to apply the skills uh, or do the things that we love, like building rapport with the patient, helping them to, to feel like uh, they're understood, they're heard, and then we can pair it with skills training, which the programs do extremely well. Mm, beautiful. Thanks, Mike. And that's certainly what I do as a GP, uh, is I always see the patient uh, for, for a session in between their, their modules and we debrief on what they learned, what's been going on in their lives. Um, and I also <laughs> learn quite a bit uh, from their reflections. In order to be able to recommend online cognitive behavioral therapy or treatment, we need to be confident that it's actually effective, isn't it? Don't we? So Mike, I mean, does it work? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's crazy how evidence-based internet-based CBT actually is. Um, so uh, when we look in comparison to the other treatments that are available in mental health, it just blows everything else completely out of the water. So for all the programs that MindSpot offers, for all the programs that we offer, uh, they've all been through an RCT. So, wow, uh, you know, randomised controlled trial, done, tick. Uh, so like a drug, we can say they work in a controlled environment. But then we also have the ability to be able to look at the effectiveness data and see how they perform in the actual real world outside of the control conditions of an RCT. And both the services publish effectiveness papers. So for uh, medication, that would be the post-marketing data. We don't ever get that for medications. Uh, so... We publish the effectiveness um, 
uh, data that we have through the system. And lo and behold, it shows it still damn well works. When we talk about effect sizes, um, uh, we talk about mar uh, 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 small, medium and large effect sizes. These programs are consistently shown to have large effect sizes. Um, and throughout the literature, that's a, for, for the uh, nerds, you know, for want of a better word, or in the audience, for the, the stats people, it's a 0.8 and above. Um, whereas antidepressants come in at 0.3, which is small. Uh, and it's actually uh, shocking uh, in terms of when we're talking about evidence-based medicine, that these programs are not more widespread. If I were to talk about a medication that if someone was taking it, 50% of them would be cured of their depression, you'd be taking it, you'd be recommending it, you'd be prescribing it without a second thought. And it's backed up by the fact that the College of Psychiatry uh, in what was probably a world first uh, for both the clinical practice guidelines for anxiety disorders and also for mood disorders, talks about the digital programs and lists them in there as the non-negotiable steps, first steps in providing the treatment for anxiety and depression. What I'm hearing from you is that it really is quite effective, uh, very effective rather. Um, and so for that reason, um, it's really our duty of care to at least suggest it um, and put it out there as an option of treatment for patients. I agree. There's been a lot of discussion in the chat box about, um, you know, it not being the preference for some people or not being suitable. I totally agree. It's not everybody's slice of cake, uh, but uh, it is worthwhile um, putting it out there and giving it as an option. All and right. I, yeah. I would, I would just say one thing about that is that uh, what I've discovered is it's really how it's explained mm. to patients um that is the game changer um and i just again put it back uh on the way that we explain medications if you hand someone a prescription and say to them oh look here's this uh here's this uh sertraline look i don't know much about it but go give it a run it's got lots of side effects um patient's gonna have a bad go right um but instead the drug companies got right onto that. And then we had this beautiful story about, uh, you know, the insulin. And if you had diabetes, you'd have insulin. So now we've got serotonin and all that sort of stuff. That was how, when I trained, I trained in general practice before psychiatry. Uh, I've told that story thousands of times uh, about the SSRIs and it helped people to, to, to be, to have the faith that it might help them. Um, mm. These treatments are exactly the same. So uh, I'm very pleased uh, to, to uh, I guess, encourage people to think of it like that. So this brings us then to a um, another barrier um, that some people um, have, which is around whether um, they're safe. Cybersecurity is really important to, to have in the front of our mind. Um, as clinicians, we, we don't want our patients to be put in harm's way and we don't want to expose ourselves to risk as well. So I, I, these, I always, uh, I'm very happy when clinicians have this stuff in their in their forefront of their mind, whether it's um, data security, um, data sharing, confidentiality, privacy. Um, you know, we want to know that the programs that we recommend have been vetted, are effective and safe. Um, so having a look at the programs on the MPRAC directory 
is a very good place to start. The national safety and quality, um, we have digital mental health standards um, and that's very reassuring to me that there is that thoughtfulness about governance and, and regulation. Um, but they, um, look, This Way Up was involved in um, contributing to the development of those standards and piloting those standards. Um, but at the moment, those aren't compulsory standards. Mm. Um, and so that's what we want to see over time, that there is even more regulation so that we can ensure that our patients are being protected. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. So then this brings us to uh, another barrier uh, that that I think um, there's, not all our clinicians have, but we discovered recently um, that that some clinicians um, are particularly worried about professional risks um, that are associated with using digital mental health treatments. Uh, and that re- relates specifically um, to a function of this way up, where if you're a prescriber and you choose to prescribe a digital health, a digital mental health program to a client, um, and Uh, As they're going through the program, um, they uh, have high distress scores. Then an email is sent to the clinician to allow them to know what's been, to update them as to what's happening with their client. Um, And it was really interesting because it came to my attention that there are a whole group of clinicians that are quite um, disturbed or or uncomfortable with, with that. Uh, aspect uh, of the program, uh, and that was actually uh, the what pr- prompted uh, me to get in touch with Mike. And then we started having a chat and thought, actually, it might be worthwhile doing a webinar. So here we are today. Um, but yeah, be really interested to know, Mike, um, your views. I understand that there are a few things that have changed with that process as a result of the feedback. Um, but yeah, also what your views are on that sort of. Um, uh, two-way feedback uh, that that clinicians receive from the program. Absolutely. Uh, And uh, I guess um, you've touched on something that's uh, important. And this was uh, initially raised as something that was almost negative. But actually, this is actually one of the wonderful things about the digital treatment, and especially one that's designed specifically to be integrated into routine care. So there's no other area of medicine uh, where you have that feedback loop that exists. Now, we've thought very, very carefully about this, and this is what makes us different to recommending a self-help book or uh, recommending one of the other skills-based programs that doesn't have a linear progression and uh, the sorts of delays and lockouts and the way that we manage the the therapy. So uh, we ask Uh, our users to fill in validated questionnaires before each of the modules. And it's a fantastic way of being able to see uh, your patient's progress as they work through the program. You can log in and see that if you want. You can log in and see it before you see the patient. You can see what their scores were last time. You get a good sense of where they're traveling. So it's great. The patient also gets the feedback of knowing that when I started this program, my K10 was 45 and now it's 35 and now whoop, wow, it's 19. Um, so there's a nice feedback loop that is existing. Now, what happens when things aren't going in the right direction? Now, with other treatments, the answer is nothing. So if you've given someone your prescription for sertraline and they've wandered off into the sunset, they filled the script, 
and they're getting worse, you won't know um, unless you're lucky enough that they contact you uh, or reach out. They may have deteriorated, they may have terrible side effects, they may be suicidal. So one of the things that people were anxious about was the fact that one of the questionnaires that we use uh, is the PHQ-9. And we should all be using the PHQ-9 in our face-to-face -face clinical practice. We should all be using the K-10 just as an aside, sorry, um, to just track uh, uh, patients before patients, just the paper-based one. But anyway, so the PHQ-9, question nine asks about thoughts of self-harm. So that'll trigger an alert in the system. Now, what's great is that if you've got your patient who's sitting at home at nine o'clock at night, working their way through the, first, through, through the module, and they fill in the questionnaire and um, they've answered it honestly, um, and they've said, actually, I am having these thoughts, then straight away, the system will provide them with the information that they need to access care at that time. So it'll flash up with the suicide called back service. There's a, you can click a button and go straight through to Lifeline. Um, and there'll also be a note to say that we think that it'd be a good idea if you reached out to your local clinician, and it, particularly if it's prescribed. Uh, and then we'll say at that point that we will send a notification through our platform to let the clinician know that you've not been going very well. Uh, there was a little bit of anxiety about this idea that suddenly you might get an alert nine o'clock at night and not know what to do with it. Um, now, there were two things that got me thinking about this. The first thing is I actually have uh, a lot more faith <laughs> because I know you guys deal with this already, but you deal with it in a slightly different context. So the context to think about is if you'd seen a patient during the day or during the week, you'd given them a pathology form, they'd gone and filled in their blood test, pathology company had processed the results, gone through at nine o'clock at night, and you discovered that they had a white cell of 30. When you came in the next day, you'll see that and you'll do something with it. Or you'll see and you'll go, ah, yes, that fits with my diagnosis and I'm happy now. So this is exactly the same. So you've done your risk assessment. You've met the patient because you're the one that suggested that this is uh, a wonderful way of starting treatment. So you know if that alert is triggered um, and, and, um, and what it might mean. When we first started, to, to talk about this, we realised that one of the things that made clinicians nervous was this out-of-hours mm -hmm. idea. And so we heard the feedback and we thought, how can we help clinicians to realise that this is a feature and a benefit and something that's helpful? So now we batch process the alerts at 7 a.m. the next morning. So the alert will go, or the notification will go out the next morning. So for most people on the eastern, eastern states, it'll be you're coming to work, you can see if a, notifi if a notification has gone off, um, and then you'll be able to log in, have a look, see if you need to action it or not, and then go about your day. Because we realise that clinicians are very busy people, um, and that fits with the workflow of what we're used to. And I'm sure that for patients, um, it's a... Um, it gives them quite a bit of reassurance just knowing that there's a little bit more support out there um, and that their clinician is kept in the loop as to how they're going. All righty. And then this is the barrier um, that came up um, as the most significant uh, barrier for, for you, our audience. Um, that question around, is it right for my client? Um, does it only work for clients with mild symptoms? 
Um, does it only work for people who don't have comorbidities? Um, and then it's come up in the panel. I know that Vicky said that she sees older clients in rural areas. So do you have to be young and tech savvy um, to be to be able to use these um, effectively? In terms of though, the, the people that I've seen at work with, actually it's right across the spectrum, um, you know, across the adult spectrum, across the severity ranges, people with comorbid personality difficulties, people with other comorbidities. Um, I, you know, I, I think in the initial, when I was a junior clinician, I kind of prided myself that maybe I would know who things work for and who they wouldn't work for ahead mm. of time. And I just now know, actually, I'm not very good at predicting who things are going to work for and who they're not. Um, so I really try and watch my assumptions and I don't assume that things aren't right for people. I like to have that conversation with them about what the options are and this might be something that we try. Um, and sometimes it means being creative um, with overcoming barriers. Maybe it means involving family members or friends or doing it with a clinician. Maybe it involves um, extra supports um, for more diverse communities, what, whatever it is. Um, I think I try not to assume that there's like this, a group that is definitely going to benefit and definitely not. It's definitely mm. not one size fits all. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the things I like about blended care is using um, these programs. I mean, I'm obviously most familiar with the This Way Out programs, but using them in conjunction um, with seeing someone face-to-face -face mm. if possible, making most of that you know, really precious therapy time, you know, that's never long enough and you can always spend more time with people um, and, and really giving it a go. And I think, you know, I love reading meta-analyses and, and all these impressive studies, but actually seeing it work with my clients in real time is what convinces me. Um, and it's just, I can't, I can't assume ahead of time who it's going to work for and who it's not. Um, it's well worth giving it a crack. Yeah, that definitely resonates for me, Alison. Um, I remember being a GP registrar in rural Queensland and uh, prescribing a This Way Up course uh, for agoraphobia. Um, and honestly, the, this person was completely cured within six episodes of treatment and he couldn't leave the house to go and see somebody. And, um, and yeah, so it is that it is when you see it for yourself, I think, that, that you think actually, yeah, this is worthwhile um, promoting and encouraging people um, to, to try. Um, so, Melinda, what's your view? I know that you're, you've got a particular interest, I guess, in digital health and, and, um, uh, and underserved populations. Um, what is it that we can do to try and, as Alison said, bridge that gap? Uh, yeah, Phoebe, um, absolutely. I, I, that's something that I am really interested in because I think um, it's the people who um, are struggling to access um, traditional care already for cost reasons um, um, and structural reasons or um, kind of life stressor reasons that are then going to potentially um, benefit the most from um, that extra access that they can get with digital therapy. So, you know, so someone who can't afford to see a private psychologist or there's no private psychologist in town, then you would think that they would benefit from digital, but then if they have even more barriers to digital mental health, then they're even more stuck and you kind of compound their disadvantage. I do think one big thing is um, 
as Mike said, the way that you recommend it and how you recommend it because people do um, really trust their mm. the, the conditions that they decide to go back and see. Mm. I think um, and bec- you, you you know your patient and so you kind of can work through things with them and you can give them that opportunity and that nudge to try something new. Uh, and then of um, Jan made that suggestion of the practice nurse and like, you know, there's a little bit more stuff on digital health navigators. There's um, a little bit of digital health training sometimes that's available at libraries, um, mm. that kind of social support. Um, uh, I think those, and then, oh yeah, also bringing in family members um, and um, often sometimes there's a very nice neighbor, uh, but I, I think being a little bit creative um, and um, willing to give that bit of extra support in the same way that you might give extra support to someone with diabetes who just needs, you know, mm. a few more frequent appointments, um, you know, a little bit more help from your reception staff with, you know, organising that scan, um, that kind of thing. There's so many options out there, as Mike said, <laughs> 200,000 apps, but there are also quite a few MPRAC, you know, resources. Um, and you might just think to yourself, I don't really know where to start with all of this. Um, so I do want to just introduce you to a few options. Uh, first is uh, Head to Health, which is a wonderful portal uh, with the from the Department of Health um, that has a little cute chatbot um, as well that really just navigates you around all the different resources available. Um, so you can, as, as, as you can see there, you can search um, conditions, particular topics, particular patient groups, um, and, and that'll give you a whole list of resources. Um, also, uh, there's a similar portal uh, called WellMob uh, for our um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients um, around culturally uh, sensitive and specific resources. Uh, and then my, both MindSpot and This Way Up have this fantastic um, option, which is uh, a um, online self um, questionnaire, what we call a take a test, uh, that um, that people can just do, they can either be referred by their clinician uh, or just do um, of their own volition. Um, and then at the end of it, uh, the, it will recommend what programs might be suitable or might be helpful for that person. Um, and Mike, uh, what's your view on um, those self-test questionnaires? Yeah, look, uh, they're a really helpful tool. Um, they're all, both of them use uh, well-accepted, validated mm. measures uh, that are consistent and reliable. Both are built with uh, safety front and mind in, in terms of uh, if someone is scoring very high on the measures, then they're directed to their GP or clinician uh, to continue. Uh, and I, you know, that happens with uh, both of our services are very similar in terms mm. of that. Uh, and it really, it's a nice way of uh, of um, uh, I love it because um, if I get someone to do one of these uh, uh, assessments before they see me, then it's actually really handy for yeah. someone to come through the door with the piece of paper that the tools, you know, spit out uh, that tell me all this information before I've even had to speak to them. So I already have an idea of how anxious, depressed or stressed uh, or whether they've got OCD before I even uh, get to say hi. So mm. it actually can speed up the process of your face-to-face consult mm. uh, as well. So there's an added benefit from them. And 
uh, I was actually shocked when we looked and we'd seen that 4 million people have done our uh, online assessment tool. Um, so uh, uh, they're definitely being used. Amazing, isn't <laughs> and, it? Um, you know, that's 4 million people who we've been able hopefully to direct to care um, who have had, uh, who have reached out uh, to take those first steps. All right. And if you're sort of at the stage where you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'd like to start using one of these with my clients, but I'm just not exactly sure, what we'd all recommend is to just try one of them yourselves. So, um, you know, we all have our own mental health or well-being um, challenges along the way. And so um, I have every confidence that you'll learn some um, uh, tricks um, or techniques um, to support your own health, um, but also it might teach you some, some good techniques um, uh, or, or approaches that might um, assist you as a clinician. Um, and then, of course, uh, being familiar with these programs then also helps us to talk about them in a little bit more detail and more convincingly with our clients. On a practical level, just add it to whatever else you're doing. Use it in a complementary way and then you'll build your confidence. It's augmenting. Augmenting, that's right. And people, there was a question in the chat about the therapeutic relationship. Um, some psychiatrist, I'm just talking about a transitional object for the therapists who are in this <laughs> audience. Um, come on. So we're actually using your therapeutic relationship and uh, their belief in you to help them to have another way of accessing therapy and care. Mm -hmm. So we are about fostering that therapeutic relationship and supporting it. And I completely agree with Phoebe that we aren't interested in disrupting Healthcare. We aren't interested in disrupting mental health care. We're interested in complementing it and supporting a very fragile ecosystem uh, that uh, we are working in mm. and our patients are living in. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast on overcoming barriers to e-mental health interventions. A big thank you to Mike, Alison and Melinda for sharing your expertise and experience with us. All the resources and services that we've discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute's website under the e-mental health page under webinar 53. Thank you so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.